As you can see right here, I got my hat. This is a hat that my uh, brother and sister-in-law gave me uh, when we were over vacationing in Hawaii. Uh, have you heard of this brand, Obey? This is a uh, clothing brand started by a guy by the name of Shepherd Ferry. And Shepherd Ferry is also, um, he's a, something of a prolific uh, artist as well. Um, you've probably seen some of his work. Do you remember uh, in the first uh, presidential campaign for Barack Obama, uh, the poster that just said hope underneath it? Remember that? That was Shepard Ferry who did that artwork. Um, and he's done a lot of other uh, famous uh, pieces of art. And uh, he's also the one that started Obey. Um, they call it Obey Propaganda. And uh, after I got this hat, I started to do some research. I was very interested. In, in fact, on the tag, it talked a lot about, uh, it had a little bit of a description of what they are and what they're attempting to do. And Shepard Ferry is an interesting guy, and I went and I read about him, and I watched some interviews from him, and he tells the story of how he came up with uh, the name Obey for his company. And it's uh, fascinating to me because um, this guy is uh, definitely countercultural. He's very influenced by punk rock and skateboarding culture. Uh, and he started, started this company and, and he's done art for a lot of big corporations as well as these uh, propaganda campaigns that he calls them. And he tells the story of, of why he picked the word obey. And he talks about uh, this film uh, called They Live. It was a film in the 80s. You've probably never seen it. I'd never even heard of it. Uh, but I went and I saw, found some clips uh, so that I could see what he was talking about. But in this film, They Live, it's a story of a jobless, homeless man who's wandering about and he finds this old church and he breaks into the church and inside the church he finds this box. And in the box is a bunch of sunglasses. And so he takes a pair of the sunglasses and he's wondering what are these sunglasses all about? And he's walking down the street and he decides, I'm going to put the sunglasses on. And when he puts the sunglasses on, what he sees is the meaning behind every advertisement, uh, that's, uh, every advertisement that he's seeing. Magazines, billboards. Uh, he can see the true meaning behind uh, the advertisements. And some of the ad advertisements say things like consume, right? So you might have a picture of a, like a beer... Uh, billboard, right? And he doesn't see the beer billboard when he has the glasses on. He just sees the words consume. He sees words like sleep more, watch TV. And uh, one of the words that he sees over and over again on all these advertisements is obey. And it actually is, if, if you look at, if you watch the film and then you look at uh, the type, which is the font that he uses, it's exactly the same as you see in the film, this idea of obey. And so uh, there's a magazine article, and it says, Obey. There's a billboard, it says, Obey. And then it, and then it shows uh, somebody buying something on the street, and so a dollar bill's put out, and he looks at the dollar bill, and the dollar bill says, This is your God. And so Shepard Ferry talks about how this movie impacted, uh, impacted him greatly, and what the movie is trying to to make a commentary on is the fact that uh, we are bombarded with advertising that is basically telling us to obey whatever it is they're selling. And we don't see it that way because it's cloaked 
in a nice, lovely package. But really what they're saying is obey. Buy what it is that I'm selling. Obey uh, me. And uh, I thought it was quite profound. And of course, Shepard Ferry did as well. And so he chose to use this slogan of obey for his company. And the reason that he did that is that... uh, He believes that people, for the most part, tend to be fairly lazy. They tend to follow the path of least resistance. They tend to sleepwalk through life. And so what people need is a unique, unexpected experience to awaken them to a new perspective, right? And I uh, happen to agree agree with him. And so um, because what he realized is that the word obey tends to be... uh, an unsettling word in our culture. You probably, when I said the word, thought, I don't like that word. That word makes me uncomfortable. I don't like when people say obey. And so he said, I'm going to use this as the name of my company. And he started a uh, propaganda sort of campaign uh, with just a picture of Andre the Giant. Do you know who that is? The, The famous old wrestler, and he was in A Princess Bride. He's the giant uh, Andre is his name anyhow it's a picture of Andre the giant's face and below it it just says obey now what is that meant to do well what he would do is he would uh, there's these poster campaigns and he'd put them up all over the city and he'd put them right next to like really professional advertising and his whole hope is that people would see the advertisements for what they really are which is somebody trying to get us to obey so that, uh, he became uh, quite well-known for that first campaign, and then he's continued to do it. And so he sees, and he started a t-shirt company, and of course they have hats and all sorts of stuff now, uh, but the whole idea is that uh, with a t-shirt, for instance, we become the canvas to prompt people to think differently, even about this idea of obey. And Shepard Ferry and Obey's mission statement, you can find this on their website, would say this. With biting sarcasm verging on reverse psychology, he goads viewers using the imperative Obey to take heed of the propagandist out to bend the world to their own agendas. And in his interviews, he talks about what he's trying to do as a cautionary tale. What's the caution? The caution is this. We have to ask these questions. What am I supposed to obey? These are Shepherd Ferry's uh, words. What else is telling me to obey? What or who is it that I'm actually obeying? Now what's interesting is that I don't agree with everything that Shepherd Ferry uh, believes. Uh, he has very strong political views and strong views on a lot of things. And what's interesting is that he's become so popular that in a way... His obey campaign and everything that they stand for as a company becomes its own kind of propaganda. And so it's just as easy to just obey what Shepard Ferry has to say and be obedient to his propaganda or political agenda or whatever it happens to be, just as easily as it is the ads or billboards. So the question is, what do we do with this idea of obey? I think that what Shepard Ferry has uh, brought to, to at least to my attention uh, and to a lot of people's attention is true, that um, we tend to just obey things without asking the question, is this, am I obeying this sort of blindly? 
And so I want to kind of echo his meta-mission, not every mini-mission within that, but his meta-mission, which is to awaken in us these questions of obedience and what do we obey? What ought we obey? What or who else is beseeching our obedience? And what or who are we, do we truly obey? That's the questions I want to ask tonight. Why I think uh, it's so important for Ferry and uh, it's so important to us is because I think it's so important to God as well. And what we'll see is that it's clearly important to John because he talks about this idea of obedience. And so pick it up now in John chapter 2, verse 1, and we'll read the first two verses. We finished on those two weeks ago, so we'll read them again to kind of get us back into the context. Uh, John writes this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. Verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Now that word keep can be also translated obey. If we obey His commandments. Verse 4, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment, and I am writing to you, which is, uh, and I am writing to you, which is true in Him and in Him, because and, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Verse nine. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded him. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven in his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know who is from the beginning I am writing you, to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, you have not remained silent but that you communicate to us through your holy scriptures, that you've uh, inspired uh, your disciple, the apostle John, that you've given him your words, that you've inspired him through the Holy Spirit so that we might have true knowledge of who you are as you've revealed it through your word. So we thank you for that tonight. We pray, Lord, that you would reveal, that you would open our eyes, that we would not be in darkness, but we would be in the light and see what you have to say about this idea of obedience. Lord, we know that the idea of obedience can make us cringe, that it's unsettling, but we pray, Lord, tonight that we would hear what you have to say and that we might see it with fresh eyes and in a new way and that by the end we might understand better what it means to obey Jesus Christ. We pray this all in his name. Amen.
Okay, so that's a long passage, but we're going to be spending most of our time in those first uh, few verses, okay? We're going to spend most of our time in those first uh, few verses. So, we want to understand what uh, John is saying here. So look at verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him. What a weird thing to say. What is John saying? To know that we know. Now that's different than just knowing, right? And if you, if you were able to uh, see in the original Greek, what you'd see is that though they're from the same root, both occurrences of know are not in the same tense. One is the perfect tense, which is kind of just the normal tense that you would use, and one is in what's called the perfect tense. And what it's meant to do is elevate that to a higher, uh, to, to get our attention, okay? So we know that we have come to know. And so uh, what John is saying is, we need to have assurance of this fact that we know him. And who's the him that he's talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ. And why is it so important that we know him? And this idea of know, uh, knowledge, is, 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 uh, it's not just an intellectual knowledge. It's not know about him. It's, it's an experiential knowledge. Like we know him. Does that make sense? Like we've experienced him. That's, uh, you know, the English language fails us because not know can mean a lot of things. But in the Greek, we have different words that help us understand. And this is an experiential kind of knowledge. So we know him. We've experienced him in a personal sort of a way. And why is it so important that we know him? That's Jesus Christ. The reason that it's important is we have to look back up now to verses 1 and 2. John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have what? An advocate with the Father. Who? Jesus Christ, the righteous. What has he done? He is the propitiation of our sins, and not only ours, but the whole world. So why do we want to know him? Why do we want to know Jesus? Because he is our Savior. He is the propitiation. He is the advocate. And so if you weren't here two weeks ago, if you were, you probably forgot. But propitiation is a really important word to understand. So let me quickly unpack it again so that we remember what it is. Propitiation is this idea uh, that uh, the anger of God or the wrath of God has been appeased or satisfied. Now, why does God... Uh, have anger or wrath towards us because he's a holy God and we have acted unholy. We've rebelled against him and so because he's a just God and he can't simply change the way he is, he can't simply become unholy, he has true wrath and anger towards sin. So he's got to deal with it. But we have an advocate, right? We have an advocate and the advocate is Jesus Christ. So when it says that Jesus is the propitiation We've got to remember why we need propitiation, which is both that God's wrath is real against sin because he's a holy God, and that we've actually sinned. Talked about that two weeks ago. Uh, We've all fallen short. We've all uh, come up against God and his holy nature and character. And so we have these two problems, the wrath of God and our sinfulness, And neither of them are the problem in isolation, but they're the problem together. And so what propitiation does is it both satisfies the wrath of God because of our human rebellion uh, that's creating that barrier to fellowship, which is is what John's main concern is. How do we get back into fellowship with God? 
and it's what they call an expiation, which is like a cleansing or a covering of sin. So both are happening with the death and resurrection of Jesus, that he becomes our advocate. He becomes the propitiation. So he appeases God, satisfies the wrath of God, at the same time cleansing us and covering our sin. This is huge and important that we understand what is happening. And so the nature of this propitiation, uh, and by nature what I mean is, what is it in itself? What is it? The nature of propitiation is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not uh, the propitiator. He is the propitiation. Why is that important? It's not just something that he's done. It's something that he is. Okay? See the distinction there? It's not just something that he does. He just doesn't propitiate. Now it's a done deal. He is the propitiation. And so it's a finished act and he's done it, but it, the, the, he is the thing in itself. He is the thing in itself. And the source of this, or you might say, from where does it flow? It's from the love of God. So Jesus Christ is in himself the propitiation, the thing that we need to appease, satisfy, cover our sin. He is the thing in himself, and the only reason that he came to become that is because God sent him. It's a divine gift. It's nothing that we can do in our humanness to appease God. It had to be divine uh, satisfaction, and that all happens in Jesus Christ. Why am I spending so much time talking about this? Because if you do not understand how big of a deal that is, you will not understand what John's about to say. It is very, very difficult to obey in the way that John talks about obeying Jesus Christ if you don't realize what he's done for you. So we don't just obey him just because I'm telling you that you should obey him or John's telling you that you should. You obey him because you recognize and you realize what he's done, what the gospel really means, that he's actually taken on himself the wrath. And it's nothing that we can do. It's not a human sort of a religious cleansing it's it's something that only could be a divine gift and when you understand that kind of love it propels you to want to do what John's about to say and what does he say if you keep his commandments we know that we know him see what he's saying there he's saying when you if so okay what is he saying well he explains Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Okay? Why is he a liar? Because if you really knew Christ and you really knew what he did, you would want to obey him. Because you recognize the magnitude of what he's done for you. And so, and remember the context again, John is writing against these false teachers who were saying this kind of stuff. Oh yeah, I know Christ. But then nothing in their life, nothing in their life testified to the fact that they knew him, including obeying the things that Christ commanded. So you say that you know him, but you do not keep his commands. Now, now, um, I think it's important to, to just quickly explain this word keeps. We see it a couple times. We see it in verse 3. We see it in verse 4. Uh, the concept is throughout this passage. 
But the word uh, that John uses here, keeps, like I said, can also be translated obey. And if you have the NIV translation, that's actually how they uh, translate it as obey. Uh, but the idea is even bigger than that, okay? Uh, if you were to look up this word in a Greek uh, dictionary, what you'd find is that the way that this word is most often used is that it's implying duration and perseverance to observe diligently, to guard carefully, to protect that which you've come to know. You see what I'm saying? So it's more than just doing the thing. It's diligently, zealously protecting the things that Christ cared about, the commandments that he made. And so, again, our English translation doesn't do it justice, but the type of word that John uses here is not just a normal verb. He's using a a participle. And a participle is an adjectival verb. And why is that important? Well, because he's not just saying keep, do this thing. He's saying, it's more like saying be a keeper. Be a keeper type of person. Be an obedient type of person. Don't just obey, but be the type of person that's always obeying. And that's, that's the kind of uh, force that John uses in his language. He, he's not just saying, okay, it's a scorecard and a checklist that you have to work your way through, but it's like, it's the type of person that you're being, right? Let me give you an example. So you'd say, I run, right? But if anybody knows me, they know I am not a runner, okay? That's the participle. <laughs> I'm not a runner. It's not an adjective that you would use to describe me. Now, before my wife met me, she was a runner, and I have, uh, I'm sorry, babe, I've, I don't know, you don't run anymore. (laughs) I've been a bad influence. But you see, uh, it's not just about, it's not just about running, it's about being the type of person that runs. Does that make sense? So that's the idea that Paul's using. He's not saying, uh, it's not a scorecard. He's saying, Keep, be a keeper, be be a keeper type of person of the commandments of God. That's how you know that you know him. That's how you know that you know him. But if you say you know him, but you're not the keeper type of person, then you're a liar. Then you're a liar. And it's not just that you lied once, it's you're the type of person that's always lying. Same idea. It's using the participle there. Okay. Verse 5, but whoever keeps or is a keeper of his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And we'll come back to this love of God uh, at the end. But by this we may know that we are in him. And he gives us another type of example that's important to, to what I just said. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, what's John doing for us here? He's trying to explain what being this keeper type of person really is like. He said, you know what? It's not really like just doing a few things that that Jesus tells you to do. It's kind of like being the kind of person that Jesus was. You see the difference there? So, you know, you hear this all the time. Well, Jesus never actually talked specifically about cocaine. So I guess, you know, I can keep 
his commandments because he never said don't, don't deal with cocaine. Well, he'd say, no, no, guys, you, you're misunderstanding. Anyone who abides in him ought to walk in the same way or the same manner in which he walked. See how the umbrella just got a lot bigger? It's not just about dotting your, <laughs> dotting your T's, dotting your I's and crossing your T's. It's about walking as Jesus walked. And the only way to do it, and here's the important term, is being in him. And you see it. It's used seven times in the first two, uh, two chapters. In him. And it's used both to say that Jesus is in the Father. And in him is light. And then it's used of us. We are in him, in Christ. And Christ is in us. And it's this idea, and we see it in verse 6, the idea of abiding in, okay? And this is such an important phrase, this idea of in him, knowing him, abiding in him, fellowship with, because what it's saying is being an obedient type of person, a keeper type of person, is more than just doing certain things. It's about being this type of person, and so you know the old saying, uh, you ever heard people say this, what's gotten into him, right? You've heard that. What's gotten into him? Or what's gotten into her? Well, that's a great question, and the gospel comments on it. The gospel comments on it. And uh, the answer that the gospel gives is this. It says, in some way the divine life actually enters into us it somehow takes hold of us. It somehow makes us a new man or a new woman whose desires are actually changed. Our very nature is actually uh, different than it was before. This includes our craving to follow the commands and example of Christ. So it's not a thing that we do begrudgingly, but it's a thing that we do with great joy. Why? Because our nature's been changed. We have been changed into these keeper type of people who want to be obedient. That obedient isn't a dirty word to us, that we actually want to obey the things that God tells us to be and to do. Now here, here's the thing. Uh, understanding how that works. How does the divine life become part of us? How does it come into us? Sometimes we can kind of go overboard and say, I know exactly how it works. Well, we don't have earthly categories to understand how this works. It's something of a divine uh, mystery, how it happens, okay? So wisdom, when it comes to, what, how, how, does, how does God, how are we in God, and how do we abide in him, and how does he abide in us? It's tempting to speculate and philosophize, uh, but the best thing to do is to just admit that we don't know exactly how it happens. We don't know exactly how the divine life enters us. But, that being said, we know that it's happened to us. Why do we know that it's happened to us? Because something has changed in us. What has changed in us? We went from never wanting to obey the commands of Christ and walk in the way he walked to now all of a sudden caring immensely at what did Christ say what, how does he speak into this situation and we want to walk in the way that he walked what is that how, how did that change happen it happened because we are now in him and our nature has been changed do you see this becomes the great test of whether or not we're being changed or have been changed uh, we are changed and then we're being changed we are changed and we're being changed. Does that make sense? This becomes the way we know that we've been changed. 
is because, man, I used to hate to obey. And now, you know what? I love to obey. I don't always do it right. But you know, when I don't obey, I get really upset with myself. I never used to be like that. If I ever obeyed, it was begrudgingly. Now I don't, I don't obey, obey begrudgingly. I obey with great joy. How do you account for that? Well, Christ has come into me, and now I'm walking with him. He's walking in and through me. And so the, the way that John talks about here is it says the truth enters you, right? Because we talked about two weeks ago that Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and this idea of light means truth. And so the truth has come into us. The truth has come into us. The truth has come into us. So you see how all, all of this is tying together? Uh, being an obedient person is not just about following these rules, keeping a scorecard. It's about be, being a type of person, a keeper type of person. And it's more like walking like Jesus walked, which covers a wide variety of things, way more than just the specific commands. And it changes our very nature. And so now we get joy, joy and obedience. Who'd ever thunk that? So here's how I think the obey process works. Jesus Christ, the light, comes into us, and we don't know exactly how we just, we've experienced it. I, I have experienced it. Two, our nature is changed, and it's changing. Three, when we act in accordance with this new nature, we act in joyful obedience. When we act in accordance with our old nature, because our old nature doesn't just go away. It sticks around. When we act in accordance with our old nature, we act in begrudging obedience or disobedience. See that? It's not just obedience or disobedience. If you're acting in, your old, in, in, in accord with your old nature, you can still obey, but you're doing it begrudgingly and you're getting no joy. Or you might just flat out disobey. Now, if you never act in joyful obedience, then I think it's fair to question whether or not you know Christ in the way that John talks about knowing. That's exactly what he's saying. He's saying these false teachers are saying they know him, but there's absolutely no evidence of it because they are not joyfully obeying anything that Christ was saying. And he gives us this example, 7 uh, through 11, and I won't reread it, but he's, you can reread it on your own. He's basically saying, guys, it's not, this, isn't, this isn't rocket science. This is an old commandment, and it becomes new in Jesus Christ. He is the light. He's shining in the darkness. And what's the simplest command of all? Not love your enemy. That's, that's a tough one. Love your brother. And if you can't even do that, how are you going to tell me you know Christ? See what he's saying? That's his argument here. He's saying you can't even love your brother. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the most simple, and what we'll see, John brings us up again, the most simple test of knowing if you're in Christ, if you have true fellowship with him, is do you love one another? If there's no love in your life, if, if you find it hard to get along with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you may not be connecting with Christ himself because this is the simplest of commands. Okay, okay. 
So, how do, we, how do we know if we've got the truth in us? Well, we should be joyful keepers of the commands of Christ. We should joyfully walk in the ways that Christ walked. Our nature should be changed, right? How do I know this? Uh, well, do you know the commands? Do you want to know the commands of Christ? Do you want to know how he walked and follow in him? Or are you just somebody who maybe knows them but's really good at making excuses? Do you know how to recite them but you don't actually practice them? So now let's go back to verse 5. And I think it ties it all together. Uh, John says this, But whoever keeps his word in him truly, that idea of truth, in him truly the love of God is perfected, What is John saying? Now there's three ways you could read love of God. It could be love like God, it could be God's love for us, or it could be our love for God. Now I think all are true. John might be purposefully ambiguous here, but I think the last, our love for God, makes the most sense in the context. And here's the suggestion that he's making. He's saying that by obeying Christ, walking as Christ walks, Uh, this idea of perfection being completed, our love for God is actually working towards completion, working towards this idea of perfection, working towards this idea of perfection. And I love that he uses the word love because I think obedience is love. We don't often think of it that way, but the word he uses here, uh, agape, is a type of love that you have for a person, a brother, a sister, a friend, um, and, it is, and it's especially characterized by this idea of willf, willing forfeiture of your rights or privileges on another person's behalf. Willing forfeiture of your rights and privileges on someone, uh, someone else's behalf. Here's what it's saying. The reason that love is perfected in obedience is what? Because I'm giving up my rights and privileges to follow in the ways of Christ. I'm dying to myself and I'm living to Christ. We see this theme over and over again in God's word. Following Jesus means leaving your own ways, your own desires, and your own idea of the way things be and following the way Christ has shown us because we believe he's the son of God and that he's died for us and that he's become our propitiation. And so let me give you a weird analogy. I was thinking about it all week. You know when someone says uh, you have a love of the game? Have you heard this? Now, anybody golf in here? Seriously? (laughs) Okay. We have one and a half golfers. Now, here's the deal. I uh, am a golfer. I've been golfing since I was little. But here's, someone say, I love the game of golf. What do they mean? Well, they might mean that during this time of year when March Madness is on, the Masters commercials come on on CBS. See, you guys aren't golfers. You don't love the game. Or, you know, you hear names like Bubba and Tiger and Rory and Phil, and you're like, I love the name Phil. <laughs> it's a great name. Uh, <laughs> that means you love golf. Nobody, none of you love golf, so here's what I want you to do. Don't fall asleep. You know, don't tune me out. Uh, don't throw up because you just hate the idea of golf. You're like, why would anybody walk around for four hours and hit a little ball? But substitute whatever you want for golf, something where... Uh, there are rules to the game, and uh, there's a way to do it, and there's, a, there's just, okay, do that. Substitute in. Maybe it's gymnastics, maybe it's a horseback riding, whatever you want to do, okay? Now, 
Here's the deal. This is the, there's rules to being a keeper, an obeyer uh, of, of anything, right? One, you must know the content of the commandments to be a keeper. You must desire to keep the commandments and know more of the commandments that you do not already know. Three, you must actually then keep the commandments in word, deed, and motive. And four, you must get joy out of being obedient. Now let me show you how this works in the game of golf, okay? You may say, how does this work in the game of golf? Here's how it works. If you love the game of golf, you have to know something of the parameters, rules, commands of the game of golf. You just, you have to know. Uh, you have to desire to keep uh, the parameters, rules, commands of the game of golf, and you have to desire to know the commands that you do not yet know. You also have to actually then, when you play golf, keep the parameters, commands, and rules of the game. Then, when you keep the parameters, rules, and commands of the game, even if it hurts your scorecard, even if it hurts your handicap, you've got to get joy out of keeping the rules of the game. Does that make sense? Let me try to explain. Okay. I do not know. Okay. So if I say, I don't know any of the commands of the game of golf, and I just go out into a field, and I swing, and I hit some things around, and I don't know anything about keeping score or what are the rules, do I love the game of golf? No, I don't love the game of golf. Well, now, what if I know the rules, but I have no desire to keep the rules? And the rules I don't know, I have no desire to figure out what they are. Am I a lover of the game of golf? Probably not. If I know the rules, desire to keep them, desire to know more of the commands that I do not yet know, but then I blatantly break the rules because they don't fit the way I like to play golf, then you'd probably say that I'm not a lover of the game of golf, right? If I'm blatantly breaking the rules. If I know that I'm not allowed to move my ball because it's behind a tree, but every time I do, I just kind of kick it out. I wouldn't say I'm a lover of the game of golf. I might love myself and the scores that I can get. Now let me give you one more. If I know the rules, desire to follow the rules, desire to know the rules that I do not know, and I actually follow all the rules, but I get absolutely no joy in following those rules and playing the game of golf in the way it's meant to be played, the way that it was designed to be played, am I a lover of the game of golf? No, I don't love the game of golf. So here's what I think how John would, <laughs> if he was talking about the game of golf, and I'm sure he would have loved the game of golf, so uh, he would be very different than most of you. Uh, he would have said this. If you don't love to know, desire to keep, actually keep, and get great joy in keeping all the rules, commands, and parameters of the game of golf, then I don't think you love golf. And here's what he'd say. Now that's fine if you don't love golf. But he'd say, stop saying that you do love golf. Stop claiming to love golf when you actually don't, because if you did, you would do all these things. Now, I have a confession to make. I used to think I loved the game of golf, and I realized I don't, I, I didn't, at that time when I realized, I did not love the game of golf. And here's why I knew. Because I cheated all the time. I was the dude that kicked the ball out, and I was like, yeah, nobody saw me, right? I was disrespecting the game of golf. 
You know why? Because I loved myself more than the game of golf. Because I wanted my scorecard to look good. I wanted when people asked me, what's your handicap, to be able to say, oh, I got about a 4.5. Here's the deal. I loved myself more than I loved golf. And golf was a way to make me feel good about myself. And here's the dirty secret about golf. Most people cheat at golf. If, if they say they don't, they probably cheat more than most. <laughs> golf is full of cheaters who use golf to get what they want. There's a few people who truly love the game of golf, and you know why? Because they're wondering, if my ball's in a divot, do, am I allowed to move it out of the divot, or do I have to hit it out of the divot? You actually have to hit it out of the divot. That doesn't seem fair. Yeah, but I love the game of golf, and this is a rule of the game of golf. So here's, here's the deal. Golf. If I say I love the game of golf, even if it doesn't benefit me, I want to respect the rules and the commands and the parameters of the game of golf. Even when nobody's looking, I don't want to be the guy that kicks the ball out just so I can go tell my buddies I got, I shot a 75. I don't want to do that because I love golf more than I love my scorecard. See what I'm saying? I'm not going to draw all the parallels for you here about how golf relates to life, but I'm going to say this. Let's not say we love God and we love Jesus Christ when all we're trying to do is hide all the ways that we don't really want to obey what he's commanded us to do, commanded us to be. Here's the deal. Christianity is not about keeping a scorecard. It's more about loving to walk the course loving to walk next to Jesus Christ and do everything in the way that he did it because we love him even more than we love to say how great I am. That's why two weeks ago is so important because we confess I fall short all the time. I'm a sinner. But you know what? I don't want to be. I want to be more like Christ because I love him more than anything. That's how obedience perfects our love because we actually come into alignment with who Jesus Christ is. He is in us and we are in him and that's what obedience looks like. We become the kind of people who just are keepers of the law of God, of the commands of Jesus. We walk in the way he walked. It's just a part of who we are and it happens, I think, through osmosis. So we have to know the commands of God and if we don't know, we have to find out. We have to read his word and find out what was Jesus like? What did he talk about? What did he care about? What does it mean to walk like Christ? We need to be around people who know the rules better than us. What did Jesus say? You've been playing golf for a long time. What's the rules of the game? Because we want to know, because we want to follow, because we don't want to be dis disobedient, and we don't want to be begrudgingly obedient. We want to be joyfully obedient, because we love Jesus Christ. Okay. Do you love, do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know him? Here's the great part. Verses 12 to 14, I won't read them, but here's the great part. John gives us this great little section here, and he references three groups, little children, young men and fathers. And here's what's great about this. He reminds us that we are in him. Maybe you've been feeling, I don't do very well at being obedient. 
John says, well, don't forget, there's little children, there's young men, and there's fathers. There's people who are young in their faith, and if if you're young in your faith, remember this, Jesus Christ has died for your sins. He is your propitiation. You'll figure out the rest of it. You'll learn more and more about what does it mean to follow Christ, but if you love him, if you care about these things, if you want to know more, you can get there, but remember that you're forgiven. And then he says to the young men, you're doing a great job. You're moving into that next phase. Remember, you're fighting back the enemy. Keep going. Christ, God, abides in you. Keep going. And to the fathers, he says, remember that you know him, that you know him. And so I just love this piece because I think sometimes in obedience, we can get so down on ourselves. But here's the deal. If you're down on yourself, you're on the right track. You know the people that aren't down on themselves? The ones that don't know Christ at all, and they don't care if they obey or disobey. It doesn't even faze them. So that's one of the great ways to know, am I actually abiding in Christ? When you disobey knowingly, if it hurts, if it stings, if it aches, if you say, ah, dang it, that's a good sign that Christ is abiding in you and you are in him because you don't want to be disobedient. Okay. So, here's the great truth about Christianity. Christianity, and sometimes we get this wrong in in, uh, churches like this, Protestant, uh, head knowledge-based, belief is never enough. It's not enough. Um, Let me put it like this. To believe that your sins are forgiven by the death of Christ is not enough. Even to sound out the whole doctrine of justification by faith That's the great Protestant Reformation sort of mantra, justification by faith. That's not enough. That can be held as an intellectual opinion, and if people merely hold on a number of orthodox opinions, they are not, let me repeat this, they are not in the truly Christian position. Because the essence of the Christian position and of the Christian life is that we should be able to say, Truly my fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John says that in this letter. And one of the primary tests of the reality is the test of obedience. Joyful, longing obedience to the commands, to the practices, to the mission of Christ, to walk as he walked, to know him, to be in him, to abide in him, to know that he's our advocate, to love him as he's loved us, that's what it means to be a Christian, And that looks like obeying and following in his footsteps and doing things the way he does and the way he says that they should be done. You see, it's not just about saying you believe them. That's what the false teachers were saying. It's about actually doing them because you love him so much. I believe this. Whatever you obey is what you worship, whether that's willful or ignorant. Whatever you obey, you worship. The object of your obedience becomes your God. Remember that movie I talked about where the money with the glasses on says, this is your God. Do you obey yourself over everything else in your life? Then perhaps you are your own God. Do you obey the mighty dollar bill? Then perhaps money is your God. Do you obey the American dream? Then perhaps comfort is your God. Do you obey your tradition? then perhaps convention or even your religion is your God. Do you obey progressiveness for progressiveness' sake? 
then perhaps non-convention or your non-religion is your God? Do you obey freedom at all costs? Then perhaps individuality is your God. And if you obey Jesus Christ and what he says above all else, then maybe Jesus Christ is your God. That's my hope, that Jesus Christ becomes the God of this church, that we obey him above everything, above anything that I say, above anything that anyone else says, that we obey Jesus Christ because he is our God. He's the God-man, the divine Son come to become our sacrifice. So here's the deal. How do we know that we know him? We want to know him because he's our advocate. But we cannot say we know him if we care nothing about what he cared for, if we desire nothing of what he desired for, if we do not walk in the ways that he walked. Love of Jesus saves us, but our obedience is our love for Jesus. Love of Jesus saves us, but our obedience to him is our love. So I think, uh, I think I'm going to wear the rest of this hat for the rest of the night. Shepherd Ferry got it right. The word obey shocks us. It's unsettling to our postmodern ears, but it makes us take stock. People, ideas, philosophies, corporations are all vying for our allegiance and our loyalty and our obedience. And we must step, as John says, into the light and ask ourselves this hard question, who do I obey? Let's pray. God, who do I obey? God, I pray that it's you. God, I pray that when the going gets tough, I don't fall back on my own understanding or my own knowledge, but that I obey you. God, I pray that I would care about your commandments enough to actually study your word, that I would let it pour over me, that in my spare time I would seek out knowledge of who you are and what you've called me to be and to do and, and look at the way you walked. God, I pray that I would not only know, but that I would desire to keep and I would desire again and again to know in every situation more of what it means to be a follower of you. God, I pray that I not only know and I not only desire to keep and to know, but that I actually do keep the commandments of Jesus Christ and the commandments that you've told us in your word. God, I pray that the truth would come and live and work in me, that my new nature would overwhelm my old nature, that I would that I would actually obey and then in my actual obedience even if it doesn't give me the things that I might think I want in my obedience I would find a kind of joy that I never knew it I never knew it existed God I pray that for myself and I pray that for my brothers and sisters Lord help us to obey the one and only true God and find fellowship with his son Jesus Christ Amen.